Hey folks, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. My apologies. Oh, life happened, you know? Um, one of our admins quit at work and work has been really busy. And then my bosses went out of town and Twyla got a parasite and it's just been all this stuff. But um, Twyla is fine. Everybody's fine. But uh, it's been hectic and I told everybody to leave me alone this weekend. I'm not leaving the house. I'm hunkering down and researching old-timey preachers and their bad boy grandsons. So do not disturb. So I'll start today's episode with a fun fact. I'm willing to bet most of you have not heard and it's a good one to keep in your back pocket. The first U.S. cabinet member ever to be convicted of a felony was a Kentuckian. This is great. His name was Albert Bacon Fall, and he took the fall for a lot of bad characters during the Teapot Dome scandal. The thing is, though, even though Albert was born in Kentucky, he didn't live here that long. Most of his story takes place elsewhere. However, his family had deep roots in Kentucky. So we're actually going to start by talking about his peepaw, his grandfather, who was Reverend Philip Slater Fall to ease us into the timeline of the entire Fall family. I thought putting together these two stories, starting with the grandfather and then next time talking about the grandson could be pretty interesting. I do wanna give a warning at the top of this episode. This story is focused on religion a lot and that is something I am not well-versed in as you all may have picked up on by now. So if it seems like I'm kind of skipping over the religious details of this story, it's not because I don't think they're important. It's that if I had to take the time to truly study and understand all the various aspects of like the divisions of these religions and New verse Old Testament and all that stuff, it would have taken months. It would have taken months, okay? And I'm already late on getting you guys an episode, so I didn't want to do that. So today we are talking about the preacher and the felon, part one, Philip Fall, the preacher. Welcome to episode 142. Philip Slater Fall was born in Southern England in 1798 one of 11 children born to James Fall and Catherine Barrett. According to an article called Philip Slater Fall, Seceding Baptist Preacher, James, his dad, had major interest in a winery. He was affiliated with the stock exchange and he was sent to America to survey a claim. And on that first voyage, he took his two oldest sons, Philip and William, and put them in boarding school. And then he went back for the rest of the family. So they're living in North America, but then the War of 1812 brought financial hardship to the family, so they all temporarily went back to England, which is a lot of sea travel with a lot of young kids. No thanks. Then the whole family crossed the ocean again, landing near New York City in May of 1817, unfortunately on what was known as the annual moving day in New York City. Moving day. This is, I love little pieces of history like this, um, so I have to talk about it. So this tradition dates back to colonial times and lasted, although maybe on a smaller scale, through World War II. So February 1st was known as Rent Day, when landlords would give notice of rent increases to their tenants. 
and then tenants would spend the next couple months looking for new places to live. All leases throughout the city expired on May 1st, moving day, and thousands of people would pour into the streets at the same time, lugging all their belongings to their new homes. This was actually law. In 1820, it was mandated that if no other date was specified, all housing contracts would expire on May 1st. I mean, it just became the norm. So farmers knew about it. They would come in from rural areas and rent out their wagons for the day. Everybody would jack up their prices. The city would gridlock. Um, it's really an interesting thing. If you're curious, the Wikipedia page on New York City moving day is actually really good. So anyway, after a day or two of having to stay aboard the ship during moving day, the Fall family was finally able to get to land um, they briefly stayed in Brunswick, New Jersey, so Catherine could give birth. Then they spent about a month in a wagon. They spent a couple weeks on a flatboat, finally arriving in Kentucky and settling in Logan County at first on either a two or 400 acre farm, depending on the source, but they had some land. And this was just before Philip Fall's 19th birthday. This ended up not being a happy time in Philip's life. His mom, Catherine, was pregnant during the voyage to New York, and that was a lot for her body to handle. She'd had 11 kids in 19 years. All the travel was taxing, and I don't know the exact details, but she died 22 days after they arrived in Kentucky at the age of 38. And her husband, Philip's dad, James, died less than three months later. So this family of 11 children, including like an infant, they were now alone in a new country with some land, but no parents. So Philip was the oldest at 19, so he was it. He was the patriarch. Um, he had left Logan County, and they, um, before he left, he was baptized by a Baptist preacher at Mount Gilead, in 1818, so just the year after they arrived in the States, and he had become a member of the Forks of the Elkhorn Baptist Church. Not long after that, he was granted license to preach in December 1819 and officially ordained in June of 1820. So he was just climbing the church ranks, uh, but he was working and I, I believe living in Franklin County as a preacher and a teacher at an academy near Frankfurt. Frankfurt became his home base, okay? So things happened quickly for young Philip Fall. He was married to Anne Epperson Bacon, who went by Nancy sometimes, in 1821 in a ceremony performed by Jacob Creeth Sr. So if you are well-versed in Kentucky religious history, these names are going to mean something for you. Um, I have to admit, I had to look all of them up. Now... Uh, this Jacob Creeth Sr., he was kind of, this whole episode is like a who's who in the religious scene during the Restoration Movement in Kentucky, and Philip Fall was hanging out with the popular kids, if you will. So Jacob Creeth, the guy who, who uh, ordained their wedding ceremony, he had no formal education, but he was very smart and had a, quote, vivid imagination, and he won people over with his looks and his charisma, his charm. 
Henry Clay was a huge fan of this guy. He called Kreeth the finest natural orator he had ever heard. So um, that's the kind of person that Philip Fall is now hanging out with as a young man, um, a young married man now. I believe they had 10 children together, although not all of them made it to adulthood. But William Robeson Fall did, and that's Albert Fall's dad, who we're going to talk about in the second part of this. Now, Philip was a busy guy, okay? He'd gotten married, and he realized Louisville was a town with a rapidly growing population, and he saw an opportunity there. So he would take all these trips to preach, you know, spread the word. The Baptists in Louisville took so well to him that he ended up moving there with his family for a while and helping to organize the first Christian church in Louisville. He was also the pastor at the newly formed Walnut Street Baptist Church, which I believe is the one now on South 3rd Street. I know I mentioned him and I think mentioned his time in Louisville for for another episode, but I can't remember why. (laughs) If you do, you can send me an email. Um, But he got a teaching job in Louisville at a private female academy. This would be another thing he did throughout his life. Um, This one in Louisville had about 100 students and things were going great, but then he got sick. And I don't know the details, but they decided to move the family back to Frankfurt in 1825. It was during Philip Fall's time in Louisville that he met a very important figure, Alexander Campbell, And here's where you're going to start to pick up on the fact that I have no idea what I'm talking about. So Alex Campbell was considered a leader in the Restoration Movement, which is also sometimes called the Campbell Stone Movement, in reference to Alexander and his colleague Barton W. Stone. Campbell started uh, Bethany College in what's now Virginia. After the birth of his first child, he studied the scripture closely regarding baptism and concluded that infants maybe shouldn't be baptized because they need to be able to choose for themselves, which was really progressive. There was a surprising amount of openness. They were big on uniting different groups instead of being divided into all these smaller ones. So yeah, Fall met Campbell while working in Louisville. They became fast friends. Um, Campbell influenced Fall as he converted the Baptist church in Louisville to New Testament. Um, That's over my head. So just know that they were in there kind of shaking things up. They were changing the status quo of these churches. Now, in his spare time, just so that you get a little personal info on Philip Fall, when he went back to Frankfurt, he was a gardener. He loved to watch things grow, according to his biography written by Patty Burnley for the Kentucky Historical Society. Quote, his greenhouse was celebrated and he made many scientific experiments in floriculture, producing sometimes new and beautiful varieties, and in the latter part of his life, used to send his friends bunches of very fine asparagus from a bed 60 years old. So once he went home and spent some time in his garden recovering in Frankfurt, Fall and his family moved to Nashville in 1826 to preach for the Baptist Church and to start another female academy. Quote, Nashville's first attempt to dignify female education. Before heading south, he warned 
the Baptist church that he was going to, quote, that he must be permitted to preach the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice. The congregation approved the proposal and soon found itself withdrawing from membership in the Baptist Association, abandoning the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, and identifying itself as the Church of Christ. Don't know what that means. Um, that quote is from the restorationmovement.com, their page on Philip Fall, which is where I got a lot of this information. Um, so again, out of my element, if you are also, rather than me trying to explain it, there is a 35-page document online explaining what the Philadelphia Confession of Faith is. Um, you can find that on baptiststudiesonline.com. But the point is, he was changing how things, like he was changing the status quo. And this church in Nashville, much like the one in Louisville, was picking up what he was putting down, even, even if it meant leaving the Baptist Association of Nashville. So his friends Alex Campbell and Jacob Kreef went down to visit Philip's church in 1830, and they were super impressed. But again, Philip Fall was in bad health and decided to head back to Frankfurt with the family. It always says that they went back to the Bacon home, which I'm assuming means her family's house, Anne's family. So they they kind of understood that they were going to be on the road a lot. I don't think they put down roots of their own till later in life. They would go back to her family's estate is what it sounds like. Anyway, this time they ended up staying put for quite a while, long enough for Philip to start the Female Eclectic Institute at Poplar Hill. In some places, it is written as Popular Hill. I'm pretty sure that's a typo. I'm pretty sure it's Poplar Hill. This was a very well-respected school in the community. Quote, it was perhaps the best institution of its kind in Kentucky. The girls came from the best homes in the state and some from other states. Although it was not a church school, it was conducted on a religious basis. The girls who came to the school not only received a good education, but they carried back to their homes some of the peculiar religious ideas of P.S. Fall. A couple places said that this was considered the first female institute in Kentucky, but if you ask Google the first female school in Kentucky, it will tell you it was the Green River Academy in Todd County, which opened in 1834. So I guess it depends how you define school, college, institute, whatever. And since the fall school was religious-based, maybe it didn't count as far as official records go, but it did. they taught a wide variety of subjects, not just religion. Uh, but this institute was a huge deal for him. It was kind of his passion project, and he would go on to teach at the school for the next 26 years. Now that that was up and running, he also wanted to start his own church in Frankfurt. So that's when the first Christian church of Frankfurt came to fruition. And this was a project he started with John T. Johnson, who was a fellow board member of Bacon College, which we haven't even talked about yet. So we have to go back to 1829 to the charter of Georgetown College, the first Baptist college west of the Appalachian Mountains. I think we've talked a bit about it on a previous episode, but just as a refresher, the first few years of this college, full of tumult, tumult, 
they were tumultuous. They went through presidents every couple years. Enrollment wasn't growing very quickly. Um, some struggles. Now, one guy, Thornton Fitzhugh Johnson, was on the faculty at Georgetown, and at first he was super into it. He even tried to persuade Philip Fall to move his female institute to Georgetown's campus and to help him form a literary institute, but Philip said, no thank you. And a lot of guys who were first involved with Georgetown they were listening to Alexander Campbell, what he had to say. And they were like, you know, this guy might be on to something. So they were all leaving Georgetown and working on starting up this new school, Bacon College. So Thornton Johnson was one of these guys. Um, he resigned in 1836. He bought a brick house on Clinton Street, a block south of the Baptist and Christian churches. Um, he would teach math and civil engineering at Bacon College. They brought in professors to teach moral and mental sciences, ancient languages, modern languages, and topographical drawing, natural history, chemistry, geology, and mineralogy. They persuaded Walter Scott to be the president of this new college. That was a big deal. And Philip Fall and John T. Johnson were two of the first board members. Even though it was founded by a group of religious men, it was a scientific school. It was even named after Sir Francis Bacon. It would eventually change its name to Kentucky University, which would later merge with Transylvania University. John Telemachus Johnson, the Bacon College board member, um, he, he was also a congressman, he was a lawyer, he was raised Baptist, but he started having second thoughts and he became close with Barton Stone. Johnson is the guy who went to Barton Stone and said, hey, you know what, you and Alexander Campbell, you're both kind of veering away from traditional Baptists for the same reasons. You all should compare notes. So he said, quote, I was among the first in cooperating with B.W. Stone to suggest and bring about a union between the Church of Christ and that large body of Baptists which had renounced all humanisms in religion. And then I also have a quote about him. Quote, It has been said that of all the pioneers of the Restoration, John T. Johnson was the most devoted, zealous, self-sacrificing. He could well say, like Paul to his fellow apostles, that he had labored more abundantly than they all. There were few states in the Union at that time in which he did not preach the gospel and establish churches. Most of the large cities at that time were visited by him, and nearly always a church was established before he left. So yeah, this is one of Fall's close colleagues and the man who helped him start the first Christian church in Frankfurt. So Fall would continue preaching at that church until 1858, and then he was needed in Nashville again. By the way, things were good for the Fall family in Frankfurt. Um, they were living on an estate. I, I don't think this is the Bacons anymore. I think this was theirs. Um, believed to have been worth about 15 grand in 1850, which would have been about 600,000 today. And then 10 years later, uh, it showed that the land was valued, or his whole property was valued at $26,000, which would be almost a million today. Now, 
He's called back to Nashville. Remember, he'd been in Nashville in the 1930s, and when he left, things were good. Their church had over 250 members, quote, living and worshiping in harmony and unity. When he returned, things were bad. The meeting house had, quote, mysteriously burned, and there were less than 60 members left. The rest had been, quote, led away by the false teachings of Jesse B. Ferguson. Not to be confused with modern family actor Jesse Ferguson. Now, the website I used um, for a lot of this, therestorationmovement.com, they had strong feelings about Mr. Ferguson. Quote, like a meteor which flashes across the horizon, making a trail of glorious light behind it, and then suddenly disappearing and leaving nothing but darkness in its wake, so Jesse B. Ferguson came above the horizon and shone as a great pulpit orator in the Church of Christ at Nashville, and then as suddenly disappeared and dropped into obscurity. Perhaps no preacher of the gospel ever stood so high in the estimation of the people and received the plaudits of the populace and then dropped so low as did this man. Hmm. So Ferguson was from up north, but he had lived and worked in Kentucky for much of his life. And in 1846, so several years after Fall had gone home to Frankfurt after starting the church in Nashville, Ferguson took over and the congregation was up to like 500 members. It was growing. Things were going really well. Um, People loved him. People loved this Jesse Ferguson guy and um, the church house overflowed. Unfortunately, he was butting heads with Alexander Campbell in a big way. They were, I think it's safe to say, enemies. The problem, mainly, was that Jesse Ferguson had gotten into spiritualism. He thought he was communicating with the dead, and Alex Campbell and the guys were like, no, 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 that, we don't do that. That's not our thing. Ferguson was so charismatic that he was able to convince a lot of those congregates in Nashville that he was right. And that guys like Campbell, Johnson, and Philip Fall were wrong. This created a major rift, and eventually his beliefs basically got him shunned out of Kentucky. And further south, like in New Orleans, where he thought he might be more accepted, but he really wasn't. And eventually he stopped preaching altogether. But the damage was done to the church in Nashville, and that's why Philip Fall was called in to revive it. Philip Fall's attempt to save this church was successful. Membership increased to around 600, and the church was back on track which is interesting if you take into account the fact that he did this in the midst of the Civil War, when Nashville was occupied by Union troops and churches were closed except to be used as hospital. By the way, Philip Fall was a staunch supporter of the Confederacy. Quote, Ministers and many prominent citizens were required to take the oath of allegiance to the federal government, else go to the penitentiary. The Unreconstructed took pleasure in noting that Nashville's best society was then to be found in the penitentiary. Mr. Fall was the only minister not confined. When approached for the required oath to the Union, he said, quote, If the oath which I took when I became a naturalized citizen of the United States is not binding, I prefer to be a British subject. When his church was taken as a hospital, 
He and Mrs. Fall devoted themselves to visiting the sick, comforting the dying, and helping needy prisoners. The couple was also able to operate a private academy when all public schools were closed. A union general actually petitioned for their church to be reopened. Quote, I believe that Mr. Fall's teaching in that church will do more than all the bayonets to subdue, regulate, and control this community. But yeah, the Fall family uh, remained Southern sympathizers, especially after the death of their son, Albert, fighting for the Confederacy. Um, They were never shy about that. So after nearly two decades in Nashville, Philip Fall returned to Frankfurt once again. And while he was in Nashville, his Frankfurt church building was destroyed by fire. So Emily Tubman paid for a new one to be built. She should probably have her own episode at some point. Uh, But when he got back to Frankfurt, it was at a time when the church was trying to decide what it was, uh, which is something that seems to never really go away. As time passes, these churches and religions have to decide what they stand for, how they interpret new and different issues that have never even been a thing before. And the 1870s was no, uh, no different. So an example of this from 1872, when, when he got back, the new church building was complete. They were going to have a, this big revival meeting celebration, and some of the members purchased an organ for the church, which of course now is a staple in most churches. But at the time, it was brand new, and it was hugely controversial to bring instrumental music into this place of worship. So the minister, and not him, somebody else, um, but a minister and 22 members signed a petition opposing the introduction of music in the worship. It's funny, this never occurred to me before, but if you look it up, there is a long and widespread history of music being extremely controversial in church. Anyway, as controversial as it was, it sounds like Philip Fall remained pretty neutral on the issue of the organ. Maybe he thought, you know, we've got bigger fish to fry. Fall would continue preaching at the Frankfurt Christian Church on and off for the final 13 years of his life. Uh, The full-time preacher, George Darcy, took a leave of absence in 1887, and Philip Fall would take his place and preach every Sunday, even though he was 89 years old and almost completely deaf. Mrs. Fall suffered a series of strokes and passed away in October of 1888, and Philip Fall died two years later on December 2nd, 1890. He lived to be 92 years old, which was quite an accomplishment for back then. Quote, The stone which marks the resting place of Philip Slater Fall's mortal body is under the shade of a large magnolia tree in Frankfurt Cemetery. The tombstone is overlooked by the monument of the noted pioneer, Daniel Boone, Overlooking the fall grave is also the monument of Richard M. Johnson, Vice President of the United States under President Martin Van Buren. Now, Philip Fall was no stranger to Daniel Boone's resting place in Frankfurt Cemetery. If you'll recall, in episode 11 from 2021, titled Where the Heck is Daniel Boone Buried?, his remains were moved from Missouri to Frankfurt. Well, when they did that, Philip Fall officiated the reinterment. Uh, 
He also took a cast of the skull, which, if you'll remember, was part of the controversy over whether or not that was actually Daniel Boone or perhaps a slave. Um, Don't ask me why a reverend was given that job. Seems a little strange. But um, yeah, that's it. Next time, we're going to talk about the life of one of Philip Fall's grandchildren, Albert Fall. And I'm going to mention this in case I forget next time, but I noticed in today's research that Philip Fall had a son named Albert, who died fighting for the Confederacy at age 20, and I'm guessing that is who Albert Fall Jr. was named after, so who we're going to talk about next time. One last thing I want to mention before we're finished here. Pretty much all the documents that I used for this episode were from religious sources, okay? There just isn't a lot of attention given to these guys in the historical record, unless they were also congressmen, businessmen, things like that. But for the most part, the articles I read were written from the perspective of people who kind of share ideals with these men, and they are pretty much gushed over in every article, especially the Fall family. Like, every article just talks about them in such a positive light, and I'm sure they did a lot of good, okay? It sounds like they did. Um, We know they were pro-Confederacy. Nowhere in any of the documents I read did it mention whether they owned slaves. Um, Also, a lot of question marks over these girls' schools, uh, things like that. I did find the 1870 census when they were back in Nashville, and that showed that a 19-year-old black female that couldn't read or write named Lizzie Party was living in the house with them. She was listed as servant. And that same year, his brother William, uh, Albert's dad, is listed as having two black servants, Doc and Fanny Bell, who were 13 and 15. In 1861, Philip Fall attended a female school graduation ceremony in Tennessee, and a newspaper reported, quote, In the course of his remarks, he referred to the fact that the people of Tennessee, by a solemn vote on Saturday last, had severed her connection with the old government and joined fortunes with the Confederate States of America, and this was the offering of the first fruits of a literary institution in the state to a new confederacy. So he was was just really excited about um, being pro-South. I'm only saying all this. I don't want to make any assumptions. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm just saying I'm not naive to the parts of this story that may have been left out of these particular biographies. Okay, so join me next time for the story of Philip Slater Fall's grandson, Albert Bacon Fall. It will be a very different story. Thanks for listening. Until next time.